We're a matter of months away from the next Olympic and Paralympic Games, which will be held in Tokyo in Japan. I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. Sport in Britain has never been so successful. Coming up in the next half an hour, I'll be finding out why and what we can take from our record-breaking Rio performance into Tokyo 2020. Four years ago, Team GB achieved a historic second place in the Olympic medal table, winning more medals in more sports than when London staged the Games in 2012. Para-GB did likewise, finishing in second place behind China with 147 medals. Now the focus switches to the Summer Games in Tokyo, and double Olympic champion Max Whitlock will be going for golden glory again in gymnastics. And as an athlete, it's the pinnacle of any athlete's career. And to go there, represent your country, is a huge honour every single time. The process of it all, you know, can be difficult in terms of team selection, everything like that, but that's what you train for. And to go and represent your country, compete in Olympic Games, now, I've been lucky enough to go to home games as well, which is very, very rare. Um, yeah, I mean, Olympic Games means everything, and it's, and it's what every athlete is dreaming of. And can you explain just why it sits above any other event that, that, that those of us who are lucky enough to compete in Olympics, why does it sit as the Mount Olympus, to use a cliche? Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of things. Very rare that you get the opportunity to do a multi-sport event. It comes around every four years. So in that sense, it's very difficult. So it's probably one of the hardest ones to make the team to get there. And I think that's why it feels even more rewarding when you do. And that's why it has that feeling of, you know, the Olympic Games is the pinnacle. Um, it's the biggest event that you can ever do. And it's the hardest one to get there. So when you do make that achievement, sometimes the hardest journeys are, are the most rewarding. And a lot of people who are either aiming for or have experienced Olympics yeah. and Paralympics, um, especially in recent years, have been supported by national lottery funding. Yep. And arguably it has transformed some of the opportunities and successes for yep. athletes. Definitely. What has it meant to you? It's meant a lot. And I think, you know, I've been very lucky to get that support from a young age. That meant I could give my everything to my sport. Um, I love being in the gym and I love training, I love competing. And it actually meant that that was possible as much as I needed um, throughout my whole journey and that is absolutely key to you know the results that I've achieved as I've got older. At the moment in my career I'm the the busiest I've ever been. If I had to do that when I was young in terms of providing support in terms of going out and getting a job funding my support myself 100% it would have had a huge impact on my career in terms of results in the future because especially as a gymnast you have to lay your foundations really strong when you're young the harder you work when you're younger, the easier it is when you're older. And that, for me, was a vital time to receive the support. Um, and without that, and without that now, without it in the future, 100% results will dip. And I think that's um, a given because of the very quick change in receiving no results as a country to receiving hundreds and hundreds of medals. I think it's over 800 medals in that time span. Um, and that's, that just proves the impact it's had. So if we drop that now, every athlete would struggle and it would be challenge, challenging for everybody. And luckily you're in a place where you're not just struggling, you're flourishing, may I say. <laughs> not just reigning double Olympic champion, but you're now firmly on the road towards Tokyo. How different do you feel than you did, say, in the year before Rio? Um, how different do I feel as a gymnast? I, 
I like to look at it, I feel exactly the same. Um, going into the World Championships where I managed to get, obviously, the, my third title, which was, to me, seems mad. Um, Why does it seem mad? It seems surreal because I, I've always done gym, and I've done gym from a young age because I loved it. I never even thought about an Olympic dream until I was probably 17 years old. I, I wasn't one of those five-year-olds that wants to win those Olympic gold medal. I've done it just because of pure enjoyment. And that's why I look back now and I don't get the medals that much, but when I do, it's just a surreal feeling uh, to be in this position now. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's just been a mad journey, but a really, really good one. And you know, coming off the back of this world title, it gives me huge confidence. I feel very lucky to go to the Olympic Games I've ever been to, um, London, Rio. They were both incredible in their own ways. And Tokyo, I know they're going to put an amazing show and do a good job. So I, I'm looking forward to it so much. And a big job of our 2019 World Championships was qualifying that team. We've done that now, so we can now train as hard as we possibly can to make sure that we get there. And how much does, obviously you said, the, the titles behind you give you a lot of confidence going forward. Do you, in any way, when Tokyo rolls around, will you feel... It's a burden of responsibility, defending champion. You know, you're not going to yeah. be in, under any radar. You're going to be very much front and centre. <laughs> Are you? Do you um, embrace that? Do you ignore it? Do you? Is it a good thing? I. Uh, it definitely adds to the pressure, like unbelievable amounts. Um, I'm lucky to experience that pressure over the last sort of four years, especially. You know, winning gold in Rio really sort of. I think I think for the general public, they just expect me to win gold every time. Um, 2017 I managed to get gold, 2018 I didn't, and that was kind of seen as a failure. I got silver. Um, Did you see it as a failure? I didn't, no, because, yeah. um, but it was quite hard to put it across to the general public because I was trying to explain, you know, I was putting in massive risks, and not that I wanted mistakes to happen, but the chances of mistakes happening were so high. Um, but I, I had to put in those risks then so that I wasn't putting in the risks now. And I was trying to explain the bigger picture, but when you do that, then you have to prove it. Um, so that's why I'm really happy coming back off 2018 um, to 2019, getting European goal, world goal. So I'm, I'm so pleased. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more work to do. And do you know what events you'll be competing in in Tokyo yet? Um, well, obviously, my main focus has always been Pom Horse. Um, I'm hoping to get Floor back. Floor's been a bit um, not where I want it for the last couple of years. So that's a big target for me to make sure that I get my Floor up to the standard that I want it at. Um, and I'm also training parallel bars and high bars. So they are, they're more of a backup for the team if needed, um, and also to help with my fitness levels and everything. So it's, you know, I have the option and I want to make myself have the potential to go in and do four upraises. Um, but we'll, we'll pick sort of what slots in the team really well. But obviously my main focus is pommel horse and floor. And what to you is the most important, whether it's mental, physical, technical, tactical, what, what are the key things you need to be working on in this next these next few months as we count down? Um, mental and physical by an absolute mile. I think in sport and I, where I am now, I've got my routines and I, I'm not making upgrades now. I'm working on consolidating every single routine to make sure that I can hopefully, it can be as perfect as it can be by the time the Olympic comes around. Um, and then your mindset, I think that is absolutely key to achieving any result. And you spoke about obviously pressure, everything. The pressure in my competition, every single competition I go to now is is ridiculous. Like, um, it's crazy. But it's important to, like you say, use that 
um, as a positive, spin it as a positive because the amount of people supporting me now is out of this world and I couldn't thank them enough. Um, so I think having that mindset of, you know, I, I said earlier as well that Tokyo is the driving force, the huge motivation, and that's the, the long-term target at the moment. Um, but it's not the final destination. And I think it's important to think like that in your head. It's not that that competition, that specific time is your be-all, end-all, because all that's going to do is just pile pressure onto yourself. I've got enough pressure from outside pressures and pressure from myself already. If I can reduce that as much as I can, and that's working on basically making sure my mindset's in the right position. And the way I do that is training as hard as I can, recovering as hard as and the best that I possibly can, and making sure I tick off every single box that I can to make sure the day that Tokyo comes round, I couldn't have done any more. And when you first competed for Team GB, you're baby face of the team. Yeah, God. And you're still baby face, to be fair. But obviously, <laughs> you you know you're you're in the kind of you're a champion or a multiple champion. Do you feel any responsibility to the team in a, in a sort of different role, a leadership role within, um, within the, gymnastics? Do you know, I kind of never really looked at it like that because it was kind of a a bit of a like a quick transition into me all of a sudden becoming the oldest guy on the team which was a really strange feeling. But I've seen some interviews from the boys actually that say that they, they took a lot of confidence and they took a lot from my calming nature in the warm-up hall, literally just before we walked out. And I'd never really thought about that in terms of what I do to have an impact on them um, because I just never really looked at myself in that way. But it's a really nice feeling to hear that, to hear that they can gain a lot from the way I am in competition, trying to be chill, trying to be calm. Uh, cool, calm and collected. Um, so I do kind of feel like there is that slight role that, you know, these guys, they, they know what they're doing. It's an individual sport and we come together as a team in certain competitions, but they know what they're doing. But I think some of my experiences and, and everything like that can help in some situations. So I do feel like it's there if they kind of want it. Max Whitlock, inspiration to your own team, inspiration to the whole nation. Thank, Thank you very much. much and good luck. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Medals and More with Catherine Granger, getting behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. As we've been hearing, Rio was a huge success for Team GB and Para GB, but I want to know whether we can repeat it once again in Tokyo. Still to come, I'll speak to Olympic champions Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, who've now happily moved on in life. But for now, let's go back to those athletes who are going for it once more. Hi, I'm Sully Pearson and I have won 11 Paralympic gold medals. For me, I, 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 I adore horses, I'm nearly addicted, but I'm not in a soppy way, I love the production of them. They are like my, my legs and, and, and I love the training of them and that is, I am a horseman before I'm an athlete, to be honest. And, um, and in my sport, for me personally, when I've, you've broken your arm, you've broken your back, you've broken your collarbone, you've smashed your elbow up, um, it must be an addiction. For when, for when to keep coming back in those uh, situations so um, I don't think you can compete for your country on this level if you don't love or are, are not addicted to, to your sport um, and I love people and I love animals and I'm lucky enough that I travel the world competing in meetings so to me 
so yeah very lucky so I'm aiming for Tokyo I, I bought a new horse out this year that I bred called Breezer um, he's still kind of learning to be confident within the white dressage boards and with all the judges there in the audiences and everything um, he has movement that the judges like and I just got to improve on his bravery and his consistency uh, on saying that in this country, there's so many riders that have come into my grade, brilliant riders. Um, the game is totally different than, four, than three years ago, to be honest. Uh, I want to go to Tokyo, but and I'm going to fight to be there, but you might just see me waving a flag from the, in, from the audience <laughs> this time. Very happy to see in front of me, I've got double Paralympic gold medalist from Rio, John Walker. John, you've got sights set on Tokyo already. I got injured after my reclassification after Rio. Um, so I then decided to transition of sport over to British shooting. And so we, we knew and celebrated with you yeah. in the world of archery. Yeah. How do you decide shooting is going to be there? How do you find out you're good at shooting? Well, before I actually started doing archery, I used to be in the armed forces. I was in the Remy. And uh, shooting was always in my blood. I always loved going to the range and shooting a rifle. And the reason why after my accident in 2011, I chose archery is because I had to design a system to allow me to shoot because my right arm doesn't function like it should. My hand works, but my upper arm's gone completely after my motorcycle accident. So for me, archery served as uh, my rehabilitation back to, you know, to taking this to my, uh, you know, my disabilities. So from that perspective, it's really helped a great deal and boost my confidence right up to where it was before, before my accident. And to have been in that privileged place to be able to go out to Rio and represent Great Britain and win two gold medals was absolutely amazing. Because I was actually telling people that I'll be coming back with two gold medals before I even went, and most people thought I was mad. John, confidence, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> so 2011 is the accident. Yeah. You watched 2012? I watched 2012 from my bed at home. Right. And um, I was still recovering from my injuries. Yeah. And what inspired me to take up archery over shooting is I was watching an American chap called Matt Stutzman. And for those who don't know who he is, look him up because he shoots with his feet. He's born with no arms. So he's an absolutely amazing person. And I'm now privileged to call him my friend. Um, he's got such a wicked great sense of humour. How important is it having that that sort of role modelling in front of you to, to then see what might be possible? Well, for me, it was very inspirational. Uh, you know, at the time, I didn't want to you know whether I was going to do archery or not. I then just started to looking up one-armed archery just to see where it would take me. Initially, I was just doing it just as a, as a hobby. It didn't actually make life very easy for myself because my very first competition was actually an international at State Mandeville. How very appropriate. So I shot there, and then the... Uh, um, head coach from uh, Archer GB saw the potential and that's how I then progressed onto the, on, onto the team from there. And you said, you know, you, you publicly stated you were going out to Rio to, to claim two gold medals. Yeah. Change of sport, uh, more newer into shooting. Yeah. We're still, you know, we're getting closer to Tokyo by the day, clearly. Yeah. Do you have stated ambitions for, for Tokyo now? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's going to be quite hard for me to get there um, because the scores I have to hit to go onto the world-class programming and shooting is extremely hard. And I'm about 10 points off those scores at, that, at this precise moment in time. The challenge of getting there is the hardest thing. And that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to in shooting. My actual main goal is to win medals in every single shooting discipline. Um, so 
I'm signing off with rifle. I then want to shoot pistol, and then hopefully a skeet becomes a, a Paralympic event, and then hopefully in skeet as well. Um, so I want to be Britain's best ever marksman is my overall goal. But I know over the past few weeks, the, the step forward that I, I've made so far is astronomical. So I know if I keep pushing myself, I might make it to Tokyo. Well, we're all behind you. Whether it's Tokyo, whether it's Paris, I feel there's a very bright future ahead. Thank you. That's double Paralympic gold medalist John Walker. You're listening to Medals and More, getting behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. I'm Catherine Granger. London 2012 was the greatest summer and before the Games dubbed our greatest ever team. But not many could have predicted what was yet to come. The Rio 2016 team won even more medals than in London with 67 in total, 27 gold, 23 silver and 17 bronze. Team GB won medals in 19 sports and gold medals in 15, more than any other nation at the Games. So the big question, can we match it again? Helen and Kate Richardson-Walsh won't be competing in Tokyo. They've both retired now, but were involved in one of the standout moments back in Rio. The start of the 10 o'clock news on BBC One was delayed because of hockey. The women's final was won by Team GB, beating rivals Holland in a penalty shootout. And when I caught up with them recently, Kate and Helen told me to them it doesn't feel like four years ago. I cannot believe it's that long ago. It's just flown, hasn't it? Yeah, um, time flies. Do you yeah. still wake up going, oh, we're Olympic champions? No, not wake up thinking that, but <laughs> yes, Helen, Helen's after a coffee. Morning. I think <laughs> occasionally it does hit you again. Like when, you know, we go and do an event or you get the medal out and you show the kids and, and you just suddenly, it does like... I'm an Olympic champion. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. When you put the medal in someone's hand, yeah. and they and they look at it, and they their face is what my memory is of having it for the first time in my hand. Yeah, then that's it, true. Then it then you're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And how how real are those memories now of that that day, that final? I mean, the whole two weeks really for me, like every day, just but we had eight games in. Was it 13 or 14 days? And then it just building, but then it was all kind of sensing that something was building but not wanting to really admit to that fact or give into it so just kind of staying on task so it's kind of like this yeah. is good stay on stay on task it yeah was, i don't yeah. think it's like one specific memory no. i think it's just more the feeling yeah of it amazing sense of we're doing something incredible here mm. and it's building and then we've done it what point during that fortnight are you starting to think about the gold medal match or the gold medal itself until we've won the semi-final. Yeah. And, and I think but I think that's why it was such a big strength of the squad, um, because we were so in the moment, we were so present. Just one day at a time. It was literally, <laughs> literally that old adage of one game at a time. And, and we, then, we did that game, and then we moved on to the next game. I think I even remember, it was after the semi-final, I think one of the first things someone said in the big huddle was one more game. It wasn't like we'd cracked it in the final, it was we've got one more game yeah. it wasn't you know it was still not done yet there's more it was so focused I mean you would afford yourself kind of like a little like this is good and then you'd get kind of slapped down quickly by don't get ahead of yourself exactly yeah in those huddles I mean that's the amazing thing about team sports and whatever we're watching now you see the teams coming together whether it's you know at the end of the match or before the match or before the penalties are taken what is what is what is that like what is that said what is that emotion of the, that group of people coming together for that moment I mean, we talked, we talked about it a lot. We talked about everything. But, you, you know, even when we scored a goal or conceded a goal, we'd huddle because you've got 40 seconds to reset ourselves. 
And so lots of it was about, you know, resetting, getting focused, keeping people on task, because it's so emotive. It's an Olympic Games and there's a massive crowd and there's people watching back home, and there's pressure. and So it's just about keeping people on task. But then the, 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 the most amazing hurdles are after, because we won every game, when it's, you know, the reserves would come down from the stands all our staff would come down from the stands and it was everybody in a huddle. They were the most special huddles because you just felt that connection, that physical connection with each other, special. And what, because you're, especially you're, I mean, you've been around many, many Olympics, which is fabulous, but that, that real team is still held up as there was something truly special about not just the results and the performances, but something about that team unity. What, what was it that was different that Games? Well, certainly for us, I think that's one of our proudest things is, is that that's what everyone could see about the team. It wasn't just that we were winning. They could they actually sensed that we were like a proper team. And that, that took so much hard work to get to that point. And in it, it's a process every single day to keep it like that. Um, I think for us also, the London team had that, but we didn't win the gold medal. So from the outside world, it wasn't necessarily perceived in the same way. But certainly we, we felt that um, for the London team. And when you create that, that's, that, is, that is the most special thing ever. It's not about the winning. That's why London is just as, um, you know, that bronze medal is just as important to us because of what we created. How, how do you create that? How do you create that team? Well, I think, well, firstly, we were empowered to build our own vision, values and behaviours by Danny Kerry, our coach, which is pretty brave, to be honest, to kind of, give the the squad that um that remit and he but he did and he was part of it obviously as were all the staff um but you know we then it was ours therefore we had to drive it and that was the 28 in the lead up to london and the 31 in the lead up to rio and it was about that selflessness about just giving all of yourself every day knowing that you might not benefit in the end personally um and that's my proudest thing is that it was just it was just every single person just trying to be the best version of themselves every day just you know and you'd have good days and you'd have bad days and we'd understand but you'd just still turn up and give your best that day and that was that was all that anybody would ever ask of you and I think that's what what it was about really I think there's uh, so many things that go into creating it I think one of the important things is that it's it's unique to that group of people there is yeah. not one answer that can fit any any other team so even from you yeah. know the London squad to the Rio squad different people yeah they're at the core there's possibly the same um but but there's some different people so therefore it's a different need um and that's i kind of think went through through those both olympic cycles was that it was was the foundation was around people and that we're human beings and that we're gonna we're gonna mess up but that's okay um as long as the intent is good um and as long as we know where we're striving for we're all going to that that end goal um, why we're there doing what we're doing and as then Kate said if, we, if we're giving our all and our intent is good then that is all that matters and has it sunk in now for both of you that those people that you, you know you look up to when you're younger whether it's from different sports or different walks of life you are now those role models to the next generation of athletes no, it hasn't sunk in no. No. no, I mean I still come here and you know fangirling over you know tiny grey Thompson you know the baroness um, <laughs> You know, is there, and I'm just like, oh my god, she's amazing. And so to think that anybody even thinks remotely that of us yeah. is crazy. But um, you we don't just, do you when it's yourself. No. You don't. Like, no, you're just 
hate. <laughs> you played hockey a bit. You know, and that's that's kind of what I feel about it. But do you, you think it's changed you at all? It's a good question, Catherine, and very deep. Have we got time in this podcast to explore that? <laughs> as deep as you need. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I think the process of being a, an athlete has definitely changed me massively. Um, playing sport full stop but whatever level gave me confidence like even right from the beginning I was so shy um, but then also just the psych- psychology tools and what you've learned about resilience yeah yeah and in that regard it's massively yeah changed me and developed me and you know but that but then any anything you do in in life helps mm. you grow doesn't it whatever yeah. it is but I, I wouldn't say yeah I don't feel like it's changed me in a in a bad way um, you haven't arrived today with your entourage, I'm happy to say. So, <laughs> what, do you th- what are the best things that you would say you've taken from that environment, that high-performance world of sport, that you will you now take on with you through the rest of your life? What are the best tools you've gained or lessons you've learned? I think for me it's probably around um, just understanding difference and that there's so many different perspectives and they're not right and wrong it's just perspectives because we're all people as I kind of said before and we all have our different upbringings and we all have a story we all have a life that has got us to that certain point and that has formed and shaped how we think and feel and see the world and that is very different it's not right or wrong it's just how it is mm. and just accepting that and being um, open to, to all of that is probably the thing that I've learned the most um, and I try and, you know, be open to as I as I go forward. Yeah, no, I would agree. Just that giving yourself time to be mindful and curious about yourself, about how you feel, how you think, where you're going, what you're doing, and then at the same time having the same bandwidth for other people, the same openness, the same tolerance levels and understanding and empathy for other people and how they think, feel, act and it's really hard but as Helen said I think that is it was it was key to us playing a team sport um, and it's key to life really Tokyo Olympics just around the corner how will you feel watching those very emotional I think yeah Yeah. I think for me it does feel like it's like a a bit of a milestone to get to Um, you know I think we were we, we were lucky that we'd had athletes retire before us and and actually be honest about how it has been and it's it's actually quite difficult. So our expectation of retirement and how that might go was, um, I think, a bit more real than oh it'll be fine you know just get on with it. Um, so there have been some ups and downs since since Rio, um, and I, I kind of feel like yeah Tokyo get through that and then it's you know then there'll be another Olympic champion and you know the kind of we can move on um properly a little bit but I'm looking forward to watching it as well and just actually watching the Olympics like a fan um because that's always cool (laughs) you know yeah you kind of miss the Olympics when you're or the Paralympics when you're competing because you're in it you're just in that bubble so actually to be able to just I mean it'll be probably mostly mornings won't it so be like in your pajamas getting up early and watching people do their you know live out their dream I'm going to be crying. I'm going to need lots of tissues. <laughs> yeah, and so you are now in life beyond. How do you find that? What's exciting? Well, we're having a baby. 
I mean, it's going to change a lot of stuff. Heard you, you're a really good babysitter, though. <laughs> I, I, I love, yeah, I absolutely. Know. Well, no, no, I'm game on. Brilliant. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's good. They're going to have good hockey jeans, clearly. Uh, would you <laughs> encourage them into this world we've shared? Um, if that's what they, if that's what they want to do, then absolutely. You know, I, I, I think kind of want them to go whichever direction they would like um, and we'll be there to support them wherever they go and obviously you know sport for us has been incredible um, and we both believe that sport is important for lots of different reasons um, but you know it might not be for them so we'll, we'll see they might choose a, another walk of, of life. I think our families have, we're really lucky our families have both given us the I guess the feeling of independence to go and follow our dreams whatever that means um, and supported us through it all. So I think we just hope you can do the same for this little one. Helen and Kate Richardson-Walsh rounding off this episode. Next time, we'll hear from the team behind the team with tips from performance directors and head coaches on working with Britain's best. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. I'm Catherine Granger. Download and subscribe you won't miss a moment.